0: I've always been fascinated by the city of Pompeii, uh, that ancient Roman city near Naples which was wiped out by the eruption of the volcano Vesuvius in the year 79. It was the worst natural disaster ever to strike the ancient world. The city lay forgotten about and all discovered for 1500 years before it was rediscovered and then excavated. Uh, The layers of ash that covered the city meant that a lot of things were preserved exactly as they were when the volcano hit. Not just shops and and paintings, but even bodies were preserved exactly where they died. Or or, or if the bodies weren't preserved, the the shape of them was preserved in the ash. Uh, And when the archaeologists find them, they they pour in plaster and it gives a mould of what the person would have looked like. In fact, Vesuvius was in the news this week as archaeologists revealed a skeleton of a man in the nearby beach town of Herculaneum as he tried to flee to the sea. He was just a few footsteps away from the sea when he was engulfed by the lava. It's a snapshot frozen in time of what everyday life was like 2,000 years ago. It's the same effect that you get when you look at old photos Uh, They give us a window in the world as it once was. We see people who are now long gone as they once were, full of life and strength. And that's like what we have at the end of Colossians. It's one of the most personal endings of all Paul's letters. And in it we get snapshots of different people involved in a church to whom Paul wrote just about 20 years before Vesuvius erupted and so, so just as the, the archaeologists are, are, are trying to tell us something about people who lived at that time through, through finding their bodies, so we can see something uh, of them uh, through this letter. In some ways probably an old photo is a better illustration than a volcano because uh, we see people preserved here not as they died but as they lived. And from these tantalizingly few details, uh, both here and elsewhere in the New Testament, we can build up a picture of what these people were like. We see their joys, their sorrows, we see their encouragements and their disappointments in the work of the gospel. And so we're going to look at Paul's conclusion to Colossians under three headings. And we're going to look at this snapshot and ask, not. Simply what it tells us about these individuals, but sort what sort of picture it gives us about the church that they were part of. Um, so the first of our three headings tonight is that this church was a transformed church. So firstly tonight a transformed church. It could be tempting, couldn't it, to... to to skip over parts of the Bible. Uh, the, the laws for lepers in Leviticus. We think, well, well how, how is that relevant to us? Those uh, lists of names that we saw in Nehemiah. People who, who we know nothing else about other than their name. And then we come to something like this. And, and the Apostle Paul is sending personal greetings to people that, that we don't know anything about. Can we, can we really learn anything uh, from these parts of Scripture? But actually, if the Bible is breathed out by God, then we believe that he has written and preserved it for a reason. So why include this list of greetings to people, some of whom we know very little about? Well, if this is God's word, then we can learn something from it. All of God's word, all scripture is profitable. And one of the important things that I think this section reminds us of is that Paul intends what he's writing to have an effect on ordinary people. We, we see here some of the, the, the ordinary, ordinary people uh, surrounding Paul. Some of the, the ordinary people Paul has been sharing the gospel with Uh, People who've been brought from death to life. Uh, The book of of Colossians, uh, like all Paul's letters, it hasn't been a set of abstract ideas disconnected from real people. It's not as if Paul is in some dusty attic somewhere uh, with with no contact with people, uh, just writing down theoretical things. And I think even after... The last two chapters of this book, that should be particularly obvious. Paul gives instructions there for the nitty-gritty of Christian life. But one of our constant temptations is to, to study the Bible and stop there, not to live it out. But by including these personal references Paul is reminding us that we haven't properly understood this letter if it makes no real impact on our lives. It's a reminder for us as churches that if what we're teaching isn't having a transforming effect in the lives of ordinary people, then something's going wrong somewhere. This snapshot is a reminder that that In all that we do as churches, seeing people's lives transformed must be one of our very top priorities. Both seeing people converted in the first place and then seeing people grow in Christ. Not having a situation where we we never see people converted or or not having a situation either where where people are converted but then they just just stay there and they never grow and, and develop. This is what we see Epaphras struggling in prayer for in verse 12. He says that the Colossians would be mature and fully assured in the will of God. That's what we pray for, that's what we work towards. And so this ties in, in a sense, with our series on elders. If people in the church aren't making progress after a few years, after, after five years, if they seem to be exactly where they were before or, or even going backwards, th- then then we and especially the elders need to be lovingly trying to diagnose why. So this list of names is a challenge but it's also an encouragement. Paul has set before the Colossians some majestic teaching. Uh, Colossians I think is is m- One of many people's favorite books of the Bible. Uh, Paul has has told them to live lives that are totally transformed by it. Uh, And maybe there were people in Colossae thinking, how am I ever going to manage this? Is this teaching realistic? And, And so Paul includes for them flesh and blood examples of people who are joyfully living out his teaching. Who are joyfully living out the gospel and its implications for their lives. So, verse 7 there, there's Tychicus, a, a beloved brother and a faithful minister and servant in the Lord, one who Paul could trust to send to the Colossians to encourage their hearts. Wouldn't it be, be great if we were known as people who could be, be sent to, to a group of Christians to encourage their hearts? There's the others who were serving alongside Paul in the work of the gospel in verses 10 and 11. There's Aristarchus who was willing to suffer with Paul. There's Mark uh, and a man Jesus called Justice who had been a comfort to him at, at his time of need. Then in verse 11 we have Jews, men of the circumcision, uh, whereas those listed below like Epaphras and Luke were Greeks. But whatever their backgrounds, their lives had now been changed by God, and they were fellow workers in the kingdom of God. One of the greatest examples of a transformed life is Onesimus, who's mentioned in verse 9. Do you remember where else in the Bible we hear of Onesimus? Uh, Was the letter to the Philemon. He, he was one of the members of the church in, in Colossae. He, he, he had been a slave, uh, but apparently had run away, perhaps after stealing uh, from, uh, fr- from, from his master, uh, from Philemon. Uh, but, but Onesimus had met Paul, he'd been converted, and now Paul was sending this fugitive slave back to his master, Uh, This is such a shocking transformation that even a great Bible commentator like Calvin couldn't believe that Paul would mention Onesimus in the same breath as these other gospel workers. Uh, Calvin wrote, it can scarcely be believed that this is a slave of Philemon inasmuch as the name of a thief and fugitive would have been liable to reproach. But but the evidence seems to point clearly to the fact that this is the same person. It is scarcely too... to be believed but but God is into unbelievable transformations it's the same person or at least he 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 looked the same he had the same DNA but you could say that the Onesimus that Paul was sending back was a different person because Jesus Christ had turned his life around Onesimus's name it means useful and in Philemon verse 11 Paul plays on his name when he writes to Philemon formerly he was useless to you but now he is indeed useful to you and me and so now writing to the to the Colossians Paul describes him as our faithful and beloved brother You can imagine Philemon telling others in the church about this slave that had run away. Uh, And no doubt the the behaviour of this slave had had scandalised them. They were shocked that, that someone would do this to their beloved brother Philemon. But now here's Paul writing to them, telling them that when Onesimus comes back there to welcome him just as much as a brother as anyone else. In fact, Paul seems to be making another play on words here when he describes Onesimus as one of you. Now, of course, Onesimus was one of them because he came from the same town. But now he's one of them in a much deeper way. He's now a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. It reminds us, doesn't it, that though Paul is is scaling the heights of theology, uh, as we've seen earlier on in this letter, his teaching is also clear enough that a slave can understand it and by the Holy Spirit's power that it could take root in his life. So we see here the gospel transforming lives of those who, who have been converted uh, through Paul. We also see the gospel here transforming the lives of those who were already Christians. Verse 10, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, Paul includes the cryptic statement that we see in brackets in in our Bibles. Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. You know, if you have to be specifically told to welcome someone if they come to your church, uh, it probably implies there's a reason you might not want to welcome them. So, why would Mark not be welcomed if he was a fellow worker? We find the answer in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Twelve years earlier, Mark had abandoned Paul and his companions. Uh, This had led to a dispute between Paul and Mark's cousin Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to take Mark on another missionary journey, whereas Paul didn't want to take someone who had left him in the lurch before. But in the intervening years, there had been a reconciliation. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a, a lovely little bit at the end of 2 Timothy where, where at the end of Paul's life we find him asking for Mark's help because he said he was very useful to him for ministry. So although there were never any question marks over Mark's faith, uh, he, he hadn't walked away from the faith. But, but like Peter at one point in his life he had failed badly in, in his calling. But but like Peter, God didn't leave him on the scrap heap. And so that gives us another glimpse of the transforming work of the message that Paul is preaching. It doesn't just save outcasts, uh, but it restores Christians who've let down their Lord and their fellow believers. And if Paul can tell them to welcome Mark then it shows that he expects that the gospel will have transformed the Colossian Christians into a group of people who weren't going to hold grudges, who weren't going to to, to hold Mark's past feelings against him. That's not our natural tendency, is it? We, we tend to hold on to grudges. We remember past wrongs. We're slow to accept people who've let us down before. But if the gospel is doing its work in you, as it did in Colossae, you'll be ready to welcome those whom God welcomes and forgive those whom God has forgiven. So we see, firstly, a transformed church. But then, secondly, we see as well a church involved in a hard struggle. A church involved in a hard struggle. As we look a little closer at this snapshot of life in Colossae, we see that it's not all rosy. Although we see people whose faces shine out with the transforming power of the gospel, we also see pain etched into some of their faces. We see some who look like they're limping because of the struggle they've been involved in. In verse 8, we see that the Colossians themselves are in need of encouragement. Uh, And so we we feel that that at times, either for ourselves or or other believers. They they just need some encouragement. In verse 10, we see how Paul describes Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner. Uh, Paul, he, he says in his conclusion, verse 18, remember my chains. And then at the end of Philemon, Epaphras is described by Paul as my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Now it might be that Aristarchus and the Epaphras aren't literally prisoners. Paul was most likely under house arrest at this time. So they may have been living with him and helping him. But either way, they've given up their freedom for the sake of the gospel. They've given up a lot for the sake of the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged in 1945 for being part of a plot to assassinate Hitler... Ten years earlier, he, he wrote a book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he said in that book, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And in this snapshot of, of the Christian life, both in Colossae, uh, where Paul's writing to, uh, and in Rome, where he's, he's in prison writing from, uh, we see men who are prepared to, to die to themselves. In verse 11, we can sense the loneliness of Paul, who has only three fellow Jews working alongside him. The gospel breaks down these barriers of Jew and Gentile. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But at times we still crave for people who, who understand us. Maybe people who, who are from a similar background and they understand where we're coming from and we don't have to explain everything to uh, maybe think of someone who, who's moved from here to the States and, and yes, maybe they're part of a church and, and it's great and the gospel breaks down all those barriers but, but I'm sure sometimes they just long uh, for someone from the UK, someone who, someone who gets them someone who understands where they're coming from but Paul, this, this Hebrew of Hebrews had been rejected by his own people just like his saviour and now in a far away prison there are only three Jews there to bring him any comfort. But it's not as if Paul is clinging on to the few friends that he has in verse 8. Rather than holding on to Tychicus who he's described as a beloved brother. He sends him to encourage the church in Colossae. So Paul and his companions are people who've died to themselves for the sake of the gospel. Would a snapshot into our lives reveal the same? Would it reveal ways that we have died to our own wants and desires for the sake of the kingdom of God? Are there areas of our lives where Bonhoeffer's words could be written over them? When Christ calls a man or woman or boy or girl, he bids them come and die. In following Christ, you haven't signed up for a comfortable lifestyle. You haven't signed up for a faith that's socially acceptable. You haven't signed up for a faith that doesn't confront the unbelieving world or or that won't ask hard things of you. This week there will be moments, probably not life-changing ones, but certainly small moments where you'll be presented with the opportunity either to do the easy thing, uh, to do what, what you would want to do, or to die to your natural reaction and do what God wants you to do instead. Uh, which, which will you choose? We see another example of someone involved in hard struggle in Epaphras in verse 12. And his struggle is one of prayer. In fact, the word used for his struggle is what we get our word agonize from. It's what Jesus says when he uses the word fight, when he says that, that if his kingdom were of the world his followers would be fighting. Uh, so this prayer is de- described as like an agonizing fight. We often talk about praying for the work of the gospel but would we be better to say that prayer is part of the work of the gospel? That seems to be what verse 13 is saying here. Paul says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and in Hierapolis. But how has Epaphras worked hard for the churches in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis? He's been praying for them. Paul knew the prayer habits of his cellmate. And he knew that prayer wasn't just a box-ticking exercise for Epaphras, but it was something he sweated and agonised over. His quiet time was anything but peaceful. We see again that that these believers' lives were no walk in the park. Uh, From the instructions to Archippus in verse 17... To say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. No, I don't think I would like to have been Archippus sitting there as this letter was publicly read out for the first time. We don't know much about Archippus and we don't know exactly what ministry he'd been given. He's mentioned it in the introduction to Philemon by Paul as our fellow soldier. So that suggests perhaps some official role in the church. Uh, Perhaps he'd even be left in charge of the church in Colossae with Epaphras gone. What we can say from what Paul writes is that while Archippus probably hadn't given up the ministry he'd received, he was in danger of doing so. So again, this snapshot is reminding us that the Christian life isn't going to be easy. That there are times when you'll be tempted to throw in the towel or at least be tempted to dodge some of your responsibilities. Uh, So Paul would say, and and again uh, something particularly relevant to to elders, he would say, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. But if in Archippus we have a, a fellow soldier in danger of falling In Demas, we have a solemn reminder that even one of Paul's closest associates could fall completely. In verse 14, Demas' name is listed alongside Luke. We read his name earlier at the end of Philemon, where Paul describes him as a fellow worker. Or we we read his name in in Philemon. Philemon. Yet just a few short years later, we, we read these solemn words in Second Timothy 4, when Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In this snapshot of church life, very tragically, we see someone who didn't make it. In this picture of gospel-transformed lives, we see someone who, unknown to everyone else, was apparently never truly transformed on the inside. And that is something we, we do see on the pages of the New Testament. We see people who, who start the Christian race but don't finish it. What a warning Demas is to us. If you think you'll be okay because of of who you are or, or who you know well look at the things that Demas could have taken confidence in he, he was friends with the gospel writers Mark and Luke and the apostle Paul himself they don't seem to have doubted his profession there's no there's no sense here that that, that Demas is under any suspicion But the Christian life is a hard struggle. And only by God's grace will any of us make it to the end. So there's no room for coasting. For Demas it was love for this present world that snatched him away. And so beware the creeping influence of the world. It wasn't persecution that that drove him away. But the love of the present world. Beware of living like this is all there is. Of not seeking the things above like Paul has just told us to do in chapter 3. Because the world is just waiting to get its tentacles around us. Uh, and if it does, it will choke the life out of us. So to make no mistake that being involved in, in the church of Jesus Christ, being involved in gospel work, it is a, a great thing. Because we have a front row seat in lives being transformed, but it's also a hard struggle. Uh, We see it in the loneliness of Paul. We see it in the, the prayer life of Epaphras. We see it in the warning to Archippus. And in the fact that once Demas stopped struggling, he was drowned in a sea of worldliness. So we've seen a, a transformed church. We've seen a tr- church involved in a hard struggle. Thirdly, uh, more briefly, we see a church heading in the same direction. A church heading in the same direction. One of the remarkable things about this snapshot of church life is that we see a range of people from different places and backgrounds. We see Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and free. We see people with Paul in prison in Rome. Uh, we see people in Colossae, people in Laodicea, but they're all united. We've already thought of Onesimus, the runaway slave. He's just been spending time with Luke. Uh, as we see in verse 14 there, we learn that Luke was a doctor. Paul calls him uh, the beloved physician. And not only was Luke a doctor, but he wrote, most of the, uh, but he, he wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. Paul uh, wrote most of the books of the New Testament, uh, but in terms of sheer number of words, Luke wrote the most between the Gospel of Luke and Acts. But in Christ, look, the, this doctor who, who wrote most of the New Testament is no more important and, and no less important than Onesimus the slave. They're both beloved brothers of Paul and of each other. And I trust a snapshot of our congregation would show the same thing. People equally valued, no matter what their background or education where the most important thing is whether they're a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, that a snapshot of our congregation would show that God's word and God's grace uh, sets our values, not, not the world. Uh, and again, didn't we, we have a, a great picture of, of that sitting round at the tables with each other at lunchtime. People from, from very different backgrounds, but united in Christ. That's what it was like in Colossae and the neighbouring churches. Uh, We're reminded in verse 16 that even though this letter was originally addressed to the Colossians, it was never just intended for them. It was uh, to be read also in the church in Laodicea, about 12 miles away, and in every Christian church since then. The letter from the church in Laodicea mentioned here, seems to be a letter that Paul had sent to the Laodiceans. It possibly a reference to Ephesians which acted more as a circular letter or it could be a letter that's now been lost to us though even if it has it's not something we need to worry about God has preserved for us everything he intended to preserve everything he wants his church to have but either way the point is that what set the agenda in these churches was apostolic teaching You've maybe heard people say, well, doctrine divides. But actually, it was the apostolic teaching that ensured that this diverse group of people were all heading in the same direction. Because at the end of the day, despite all their differences, they're all on the same page. And so so we see in these closing verses of the letter, this closing section, we see that Epaphras, a Greek, is praying for the same things that Paul, a Jew, is praying for back in chapter 1 verse 9 Paul had prayed that the Colossians would know God's will in chapter 128 we saw how Paul's goal was to present everyone mature in Christ and here in verse 12 we see that Epaphras is struggling in prayer for both those things he says that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God so it's not doctrine that divides but false doctrine those bringing disunity to the church in Colossae were those who had strayed away from the apostolic teaching. Those who were teaching that Jesus alone wasn't in us. And notice as well here that this was a unity that, that went beyond the individual congregation. It's, it's not what the New Testament expects if we are, are united as a congregation. But, but we don't have anything to do in, in any other churches uh, some, some today talk about uh, gospel partnerships. Uh, we, we just call it Presbyterianism. The churches of the New Testament weren't independent entities. They taught the same thing. They accepted the authority of the wider church and they had a mutual care for one another. So in light of that we can say that a church which just focuses on itself falls short of the New Testament pattern. A congregation which doesn't pray for the churches around it. A congregation which doesn't help out other churches where it can. is showing the world a picture that's out of line with this snapshot we get in the Gospels. And so we we reach the end of this great letter. There are two books of the Bible that end with a question. Uh, Maybe uh, someone... uh, We'll, we'll know the answer to that uh, later on. Colossians isn't one of those two, at least not, not technically. But it does end with the great teaching of this book being brought down to everyday lives. It ends with a picture of ordinary lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by doing so, it does ask a question. It asks each one of us, has the gospel transformed your life And is it continuing to transform your life day by day and year by year? Have you had an encounter with the risen Jesus? The one who transformed Paul from a persecutor of Christians into someone who would be used to write down God's word. And through Paul who would influence the lives of the people named in front of us and through them to reach yet more others. Do you perhaps need reminded that what you've signed up for is meant to be a hard struggle and you're not going to be able to do it in your own strength? Or do you need to see this picture of people from diverse backgrounds heading in the same direction to remind you that the New Testament doesn't envisage a Christian life that's just about you and God and you never have to get alongside other believers and try and work with them. None of us appear here by name in Paul's letter, but there is a sense in which our very lives are to be a letter. As he writes to the church in Corinth, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The last four words of the letter. Our grace be with you. They remind us that these things will never be true of us in our own strength. But may God, by his grace, make us more and more a letter from Christ. Written on our hearts by his spirit. Amen. Well, we turn now to sing about transformed lives from Psalm number 87. Transformed lives aren't, aren't just things the Bible records for us. They're also things the Bible celebrates in song. Uh, and it's also here in Psalm 87. Uh, it's a psalm which speaks of people coming to worship God from very different and very surprising backgrounds. Uh, traditional enemies of God's people, uh, but, but when God is, is counting peoples, uh, they're found among the people of God. And may this be, be our great desire as God's word goes forth, and may we share God's great desire that men and women and boys and girls would, as a result, find their joy no longer in the things of this world, but in Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, so the tune is number one hundred and thirty-eight, Saint Anne. A tune number one three eight, uh, which which I believe is, Oh God, our help in ages past. So Psalm eighty-seven will stand and sing praise.